0: If you guys got your Bibles, open up to the marvelous book of Job. (coughs) We'll uh, we'll continue to take a look at God's champion. It's kind of cool because for me, as we look at the scriptures, as we open them up, God lays out for us in the first two chapters that Job is his guy. Job is the man that God has called, the man that God is directing. And the challenge... From Satan. This is a, a battle between Satan and God in chapter 1 and 2 of Job. And the battle is this Can a righteous man suffer and still remain faithful to God? Can a righteous man suffer and still remain faithful to God? Now, Job didn't get to sign up to be God's champion. God picked him. But in chapter 1, God said, There is nobody on earth like Job. No one on earth that is righteous like he is, who loves me like he does, who has a relationship with me. And Satan said, Well, does he love you for nothing? I mean, if you take away all his stuff, then he'll curse you to your face. So God took the challenge. And his champion went to battle against Satan. The problem is sometimes as we look through the book of Job, we lose sight that that's the battle. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers in the dark places, spirits of wickedness, right? The, the word of God tells us that's our battle. The problem is all of us can tend to get focused on the guys that are around us condemning us or charging us with wrong and we forget that the battle was a spiritual battle. The suffering was physical suffering but the battle that was spiritual. And the problem is Paul told us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The weapons of the warfare are not wrapped up in our Abilities, our strength, our wisdom, um, our willpower. But the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. The great thing about Job, when well, we come to, to chapter 42, which we will one day, when we come to chapter 42, I promise, Job tells us, or the Lord tells us, in all of this, in all of this, everything that we've read, 1 through 42, Job never sinned with his lips. He couldn't say the same thing about Job's friends. He says that Job's friends did not rightly represent God. And so he, he speaks to Eliphaz in particular Because Eliphaz is the oldest guy. He's like the leader of all the friends. So as he's speaking to one, he's speaking to them all. He says, you need to pray that that Job prays for you. Because if Job doesn't pray for you, all the stuff Job went through is coming to you. And Scripture tells us Job prayed for his friends. Job still loved his friends, even though his friends were... Relatively hateful. There are three discourses that we see in the book of Job. We just finished the first discourse, which means Eliphaz spoke, Bildad spoke, Zophar spoke, and in between each one, Job responded. Job responded to what they said. Now, Eliphaz started the first time, you know, kind of nice, trying to be nice a little bit, but basically the basic premise of all of, of Job's friends is God wouldn't do this to you, Job. God wouldn't do this to you. You messed up. You did something wrong. This is the hammer of God coming down on you for sin. And because you won't repent of your sin, it makes you a hypocrite. And that's basically the charge of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar through the book of Job. Job will respond to them and he'll say, Tell me what I did. Tell me what sin I sinned. And I I will repent. You tell me what it is. But they don't know. They just know he's suffering so bad, it has to be a bad sin that he committed. The problem is, it's not what Scripture teaches us. John chapter 9. Jesus comes upon a man born blind. And the disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who did something wrong that made this guy blind? And Jesus said, it was none of that. It was for the glory of God to be revealed that he was born blind. See, Job exists to take our theology. We've been talking about this on Sunday morning too. And shake it and tweak it. And tell us to stop putting God in a box that we think we can explain. And the, and, and the reality is, a lot of people in the church do this. They see someone suffering and they think, oh, they've done something wrong. There's some sin in their life, some secret sin. And if that secret sin was revealed, then this will all be straightened out. But if they don't reveal that secret sin, then they're going to continue to suffer. There's just one problem. Chapter 1 of Job, God said, there was no one on earth as righteous as Job. It messes with our concept that if God loves me, he'll only allow good things to happen in my life. But that's not what scripture tells us. And the test, the battle was spiritual. The battle, a spiritual battle between Satan and the Lord and God saying, No, I know, I know, I have a relationship with Job and it's not it doesn't hinge on his life being good and it doesn't hinge on him being healthy. Him and I, we're tight and no matter what happens to him, he won't turn his back on me. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. Now Job, he don't know what in the world's going on. But if you read all of his responses, he never charges God with wrong. And he always attributes his suffering to God. Everything that enters into our lives, yours, mine, everybody, who, who at, at very least is a believer, the suffering that enters into our life passes through the hands of a God who died for me. Whatever he allows, pass through his hands. And according to Romans chapter 8, whatever he's allowing, as long as I love him, and am the called, I'm saved, I'm born again, then everything he allows into my life is for my God and God, my good and God's glory. So those are things we have to hang on to as we go through. We come to the second discourse now. The three guys are going to all answer him. But now the second time, they're all ticked. They're all mad. They're tired of Job saying that he didn't do nothing wrong. So they're going to turn it up a notch they're going to get a little a little meaner a little crankier if such a thing <laughs> would be possible their major problem is this if job is not a sinner and he's being if he's not a sinner being punished by god they got to change their theology and it scares them because it takes away from them their theory that if I live a life obedient to God, I'll never suffer. And that's just not on the page of Scripture. Who's the most obedient person you can think of in the Bible? And who suffered more than anyone else you've ever known? Yeah, Jesus suffered more, was more obedient. The idea that living a life obedient saves us from suffering is nowhere in here. What's in here is the promise that says whatever things we suffer will work for our good and God's glory. And He'll give us the strength. Remember last time we talked about this? We said that we got this crazy notion in the church that that the Bible says God will never give me more than I can handle. Well, after church, you show me where that's at. It ain't in the Bible it might be in Second Jackie chapter 2, verse 65, but it isn't in the Bible, nowhere. In the Bible, it says, "No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And with that temptation, God gives us a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. And we translate that to, "God will never give us more than we can handle." That's not what that says. God frequently will give you more than you can handle to drive you to take his yoke upon you because he's the one who has the strength to carry the burden. Job understands that, but as he goes through his suffering, what he has a problem with is he doesn't understand why. Now, we've been there before, right? If you've been walking with Christ at all, there had to have been a time where you're like, why is this happening? Why is this being allowed? What is going on? We don't understand what's happening. That's where Job is. But even though Job expresses his worry, expresses his, his frustration, expresses his, his uh, not understanding what God's doing, God still says at the end, and Job never sinned with his mouth. It's not a problem to open your heart to God and say, Why? The problem is to shake your fist at God. Don't do that. In fact, don't even listen to the songs that talk about doing that. That's just, that's bad. Don't shake your fist at God. You can reach your hands to God and say, Lord, why? What's going on? I don't understand. You can pour out your pain. You can pour out your, your, your uh, frustration. You can lay that stuff all out. But in all of that time, Job never forgot who God was. Never. And that's what we want to do. So here comes Eliphaz, chapter 15, verse 1. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Now, remember as we look through Job, Job's oldest book in the Bible, and <clears throat> Job is written to us in verse. You guys understand what that means? When we read the book of Job, we're reading A play that is written to us about what happened to Job. It's all written in Hebrew poetry. If you look at Job, you'll see that it's all in verse. The point is, the story doesn't change the fact that the story is true or not true. It's telling us, here's the story of what happened to Job. And it's put together in such a way that we can begin to understand what's going on in Job's friends, what's happening in their hearts. So he starts with, man, you are so wise and you have no knowledge. That's like, it's bad. Job, you think you're so smart, but you really don't know anything. You're full of hot air. That's what he's saying. You are full, you fill yourself with the east wind. Should he reason with unprofitable talk? You're wasting your time talking to me. Or by speeches with which he can do no good? Your answers aren't even worthy of a reply. See, this is the heart. This is a heart of the poetry that Eliphaz is saying. He doesn't like his answer. I don't like your theology. I don't like the concept that you're painting, that you have a relationship with God, and this suffering came upon you anyways. You had to do something wrong, and you need to repent or you're a hypocrite. So he goes on. He says, listen, why don't you call out to God? Look at verse 4. Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. Now, if you've read any of the 14 chapters that come before this, what you hear Job doing is calling out to God every couple of verses. Oh Lord, oh Lord, he's calling to God like crazy. But Eliphaz is charging him. You're not praying. You're not seeking the Lord. That's not the reality. That's his charge. For your iniquity teaches your mouth. So he's telling him: your sin, this sin that's inside of you, is it's coming out... (coughs) Excuse me, it's coming. going to cough again. (coughs) I'm going to cough or sneeze, one of those things. So, Lori Lee, you might want to duck if I'm looking at you and that happens. (laughs) He says, your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. So, he says, you're contradicting yourself. You're not making any sense. The things you're saying don't fit with what I know. Now, the problem is he's trying to weigh personal experience and understanding of the wicked with what's happening to Job. You know, sometimes logic falls short in understanding the things God does. Are you aware of that? There's this fellow named Joshua coming to do battle, this big town full of little French guys, they're peas and they sit on a wall, and they talk in a French accent. You guys seen it, didn't you? No? It sounds just like a a bad episode of Monty Python as they're calling down, calling names to the guys who are marching around the city. Does it make any sense to just march around the city, don't do nothing? And the seventh day, does it make sense to do it twice as much? Does it make sense to suddenly blow your trumpet and expect all the walls to fall down? Defies logic, but it doesn't defy God. The problem with Eliphaz is he's saying it's not logical that you are following the Lord, that you love the Lord and you're suffering. So you did something and you need to come clean. He says, My experience and your relationship, they, they don't measure up. You know, experience lies all the time. You guys know that your feelings lie? Every day. For example, I'm hungry. Do you see the size of me? I could miss a few meals, I'll be okay. So when my body says it's hungry, is that sometimes I'll even say, "Oh my gosh, I'm starving to death." No, you're not starving to death, fat man, you could miss a couple of meals. Sometimes <laughs> I can always count on you, John. Sometimes our feelings lie because we think we know what somebody else is thinking when they're, when they're talking to us, or we think we know what somebody else is going through. And that's what's going on with Eliphaz. His, his feelings are lying to him. He's confused about what's going on. So now he's gonna, in verse 7, he's gonna start making personal attacks. He says, are you the first man who was born? Because Job thinks he's wiser than those guys. Or were, or were you made before the hills? Do you, you think you're older than the hills? You've been around so long? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? You think you're the only one who knows what's going on. But the problem is this, guys, don't forget. Job <clears throat> has lost it all. He's covered with with probably cancerous sores. You can't even recognize him. He's so tore up, sitting in a in a garbage heap. He's been out there for who knows how long. And his friends come to him and think they can speak about his suffering. No, they can't. You can't speak about somebody else's suffering. All you can do is come alongside and strengthen the weak knees and the arms that hang down. But Eliphaz is trying to understand it. And he says, Job, are you the only one who knows what's going on? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us. He says, look, we're older than you, Job. We've been around a block. We know what's going on. Uh, In fact, he says, we're much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And the word spoken gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at? Why why are you so depressed, so down, struggling with weeping there in the pile? Are you turning away from the counsel of God? That's what they're asking him. So he begins in verse 13 to talk about what he perceives as Joe's attitude toward God. He says that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth. So he's charging Job sinning with his lips. That's what he's saying. You're mad at God and you're taking it out on God, but nowhere does God say that's true. Do you reckon God needs our defense? We might be wrong trying to defend God. Moses was, right? You guys remember, he's angry at the children of Israel. The Lord said, "Go speak to the rock." But Moses was fed up with the children of Israel, so he went over there and beat the rock. Must we give you water from this rock? And he beats it. He's trying to defend God. And it kept him out of the promised land. God didn't need his defense, and the Scripture tells us God wasn't mad at the people. He had compassion. They were thirsty. Do we have to remember those things? Eliphaz is charging Job was sinning with his mouth. And then he begins to talk about the sinfulness of humanity. Now, most of the stuff he says in his next section is true. Listen. What is man that he could be pure? There are nobody pure. And he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous. Is there any way we can be righteous in and of ourselves? The scripture teaches us that we are made justified based on our faith in God. Right? That we put our faith in Jesus Christ and he gives us grace. The righteousness we don't Deserve it's all through him. He accomplishes the work. There's a there's a four hundred year argument between Calvinists and Armenians of which came first, the chicken and the egg. So I'll solve it for you. In Ephesians chapter two, the Bible says that we are saved by grace; that it is the gift of God. That not of works, lest any man would boast. The that is not referring to the faith. That is referring to the grace. It's so easy to see in the, in the Greek construct. So what's that mean? That means faith is your part. Grace is God's part. How do we gain faith? Is it natural? No. What's the Bible say? Faith comes out. By hearing. In hearing What? The word of God. So as I hear the word of God, the gospel, faith is birthed in my life. And I have an opportunity to put it in Christ. And he will, by grace, save me. I didn't earn it. I'm a guy drowning in the ocean. Jesus is the dude diving out of the helicopter and tying me to the rope and pulling me up. Nobody's glorying in me, going, Whoo, hey, good, almost dead guy. So cool to watch you practically save yourself. No, I didn't do nothing. I'm drowning. He saved me. I was smart enough to put my hope in him, my trust in him, my faith in him. So we're not righteous of our own. If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man, who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? i got no problem with Eliphaz. Man is a sinner. No problem. Job has no problem. Job never said he's not a sinner. He just said, you want me to repent? I don't know what to repent of. I don't know what I did that brought all this on. But in chapter 1 and 2, we know he didn't do nothing. Satan is doing battle against Job because Job's God's champion. He didn't do anything. He didn't sin. It wasn't the, the cause of what happened. So, he's going to tell him what wickedness. Wickedness is the reason behind your suffering. Look at 17. I will tell you, hear me. What I have seen, I will declare. I know what's going on here. I know what's happening to you. What wise men have told, <clears throat> not, had, not hiding anything received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no alien passage among them. So I saying, let's talk about the wisdom of the past. The wisdom of the past. These old guys who understand the will of God. Listen to what they said in verse 20. "...the wicked man rise with pain all his days." Is that true? Can anybody think of a wicked man who ain't writhing in pain right now? How about a wicked man who's doing okay? Oh, yeah. Look, the wicked do not suffer. Does suffering come for the wicked? Sure. It's a question of timing. But the Bible tells us God is long-suffering desiring that no one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. So God withholds His judgment. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness. He is long-suffering toward us, right? He wants men and women to have opportunity to repent and have a life with Him. So He's not pouring out His judgment upon the earth. The wicked don't writhe in pain all their days, When they die, or when they come before their judge, payday someday. But the wicked are not the only people who suffer. And the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Listen, dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. So he's saying the, the wicked guy gets wealthy, gets rich, and then the destroyer comes and wipes him out. He's basically saying everything that happened to you, Job, is a sign that truly, somewhere secretly, you are a wicked man. Otherwise, God wouldn't have killed your kids. And He wouldn't have took all your stuff. And you wouldn't be sick. And you wouldn't be suffering in the pit. You must be evil. Cause that only happens to the wicked. Look at verse 22. He does not believe that he will return from darkness. Darkness is speaking of death. For a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Again, darkness speaking of death or sin or, or evil. He's saying, man, this destruction is coming. He's just waiting for his destruction. Like you, Job. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. So not only is he dealing with danger and death and afraid of the darkness, but now he's filled with dread. that Bad things are coming. He's describing everything Job's been going through. Remember how it started. This is the wicked. This is a bad man. You're a bad person, Job, because bad stuff only happens to bad people. That's his charge. Verse 25. For he stretches out his hand against God. This is the wicked. The wicked man is in rebellion against God. He shakes his fist to heaven. He acts defiantly against the Almighty. Defiantly. Job is continually calling out to God. He's continually asking God why. God never charged Job with a wrong, but Job's friends, they do. You're doing this all wrong. Job, you're a rebel. You're rebelling. And then in verse 27, (coughs) he's not only are you rebellious, you are a self-indulgent pig. Well, that's kind of harsh. Listen. Though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat. I'm feeling insulted right now. He's saying he's self-indulgent. He just keeps pouring it on himself, taking care of himself, feeding himself. You're a rebel against God. You're self-indulgent. You're wicked. You're full of dread and danger and death and darkness. So you guys like comforter like that to come over when you're feeling down? He dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. So now he's looking around Job's place. He used to be the richest man in the East, and he's looking around at Job's place, and he's saying, "The prosperity of the wicked never lasts. See, you're in ruin. You're in ruin. He says, he will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Yeah, it was bound to happen, Job. There's a section of Scripture (coughs) in the New Testament, Well. We'll be coming to it soon, where the Lord talks about two or three. You guys have heard the phrase, where two or three are gathered, the Lord says, there I am in your midst. That scripture, we use it all the time to talk about, like when there's a small group of us together, that God's there. And really, if one is gathered, the Lord is there. Because if you're a believer, God's in you, so the Lord's there if there's only one. The scripture that talks about two or three gathered is two or three gathered together in judgment. It's about dealing with sin or problems. It says, so where two or three are gathered, how many witnesses were there supposed to be if somebody had done a wrong? Two or three. Is that witnesses who heard about it or witnesses who saw it? The word for witness is eyewitness. doesn't mean somebody told you. It means this is something you saw. Where two or three witnesses, God says, I'm in their midst. I'll guide their judgment. Remember, the Bible says you got a problem with your brother, go to your brother. If it can't be solved, take two or three. So we take two or three. So here in round job, you got three guys who all accuse him of horrible sin, but none of them have any idea what it is. Do me a favor. Don't do that. If you don't know what it is, keep your nose out of it. Don't assume you know. We're two or three witnesses. The Lord says, there I am in their midst. I'll guide their judgment. I'll, I'll open eyes. We'll, I'll speak through them. It'll be confirmed with two or three. The concept of coming together. But when you've got three witnesses, and all of them say, you've done something really bad, we just don't know what it is. And we know you've done something really bad because all this bad stuff that happened in your life, that's bunk. God charges those people with wrong." Good. So we should keep our mouths closed if we don't know. Typically what happens is somebody hears something about somebody else and they gather two or, friends, two or three friends together and tell them. And then they go confront the person because now they all know about it because they told each other. Yeah, that's called gossip. And it's one of the things God hates. I try not to be in the category of things God hates. When the Lord speaks to us in Proverbs and He says, Six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination. I don't want to be doing the things that are in that list. I don't want to do it. So we ought not. If we see it, and we got two or three other people who have seen it, we are under obligation by the spirit of god to confront our brother if you didn't see it shut up pray just pray just go before him eliphaz not afraid to sling it he don't know what's wrong but he's not afraid to sling it listen to what he says in verse 31 let him now every time he's talking about him you guys get he's talking about job right He's not talking about, well, if there was a guy suffering in a pit like you, Job. That's who I'm talking about. No, he's talking about Job. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. So he says, your faith is in futile things, worthless things. You're trusting in worthless things, Job. My goodness. I don't know how this guy says this stuff, man. I don't know how he how he's able to to share <coughs> what's going on and what he's saying and what he's thinking. But Job spoke last time we were together and said, Yea, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, speaking of God. And Eliphaz comes back and says, Oh, you're trusting in worthless things. Don't so what, don't trust in God? I'm trusting in God that that, that God that God is doing something that God is working, but that's what Eliphaz is saying. Your faith is wasted. And in verse thirty-two, he tells them, "You better get prepared. You need to prepare yourself for repentance." Drives me crazy when people tell me to get prepared. You guys ever heard that? Man, it just irritates me. Get prepared. Get prepared. So so if I store up enough food, what what's that mean? I'll last longer? Yippee. Yeah. This is where I'm storing it up. I'm gonna last longer than John. He might have food, I don't have any, but I'll be okay. (coughs) What's the Bible? Bible gives us one command. I don't understand why people can't hold on to the one command. The Bible gives us one command. I love that God does that because He says, you know, if I give you too many. You know, the Ten Commandments was rough on you guys, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break it down to one thing. Go into all the world making disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them the things I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even until the end of the age. Where in there did he say, store up a bunch of food and get ready for the tribulation? So, so I'm supposed to focus on me and fill up my basement. Where I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. Yeah. So, don't come talk to me about saving stuff up. I got burned once on that deal. I did. I'm stupid. Long time ago. You guys remember Y2K? Gosh. The height of dumb. The earth is going to end. All the computers are going to stop working. I bought a bunch of wheat and stuff what am I going to do with that I don't know what to do with wheat how do you make it bread you put it in the oven and it comes out a loaf of bread and I got all wrapped up into that like and then after it was over I felt like the stupidest person on earth And I said you know what I was born in 64 when they do the fallout shelter So I was there. <laughs> they were making concrete little blocks so they could live in there. I seen a, I seen a cartoon one time when this guy came out and it was nothing but devastation. He said, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. It does make me wonder. Uh, to be honest, if, if there's a nuclear holocaust, I want to be as close to where the bomb goes off as I can get. And I hope the last thing coming out of my lips is a is a sinner's prayer with somebody who don't know Jesus. Because that's what we're supposed to be doing. But he's saying, you need to prepare. It will be accomplished before his time. He won't be ready. And his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape, like a vine. You were supposed to be fruitful, but you weren't. You weren't ready. And cast off his blossom like an olive tree. <clears throat> you You should get prepared, Job. You better get prepared. For the company of hypocrites will be barren. Wow. Okay, <clears throat> politically what he's saying is, Job, you're a hypocrite and that's why God killed all your kids. It'll make sense when we get to verse 2 of 16 when Job says, Miserable comforters are you all. You're not making me feel better. Job, you're a hypocrite. That's why God took your kids and fire will consume the tents of bribery they conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. So Eliphaz lays into them, the beginning of the second discourse. Eliphaz lays into him, and Job responds. So Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Thanks for nothing. Every time one of you guys talks, I feel worse. I hope we're not comforters like that. Shall words of wind have an end? When are you going to stop talking? Or what provokes you that you answer? Why do you keep bugging me? Why don't you guys go home? Who called you anyway? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place. I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. Look, criticizing me is easy. Comforting is not so easy. But he goes on in verse 5. But I would strengthen you with my mouth and comfort you with my lips, and then they would relieve your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not relieved, and if I remain silent, how am I eased? If I sit here and am quiet, and you guys just hammering on me all the time, it don't doesn't bring comfort. I still don't understand why God's doing what He's doing, but you guys all telling me I got a secret sin is not helping. But now he has warned me out. Verse seven, Job is talking about God. He's not talking about his friends. He's saying, God has warned me out. He's brought me to the brink of death. And then looking up to heaven, he says, you have made me desolate, all my company. Remember, God took his family, ten children. One, one strong wind, one tornado, no kids. That happens in the world still, don't it? Job says, Man, you, you have taken, you made my, my family desolate. You have shriveled me up. He's talking about his health. His skin is all, is all wrinkled and sore and a mess. And it is a witness against me, my leanness. Rises up against me and bears witness to my face. Still talking about God. He tears me in His wrath and hates me. Job trying to deal with his grief. He's destroying me. I don't know why God's doing what He's doing. He gnashes at me with His teeth. And my adversary sharpens his gaze upon me. Now he looks to his friends. They gape at me with their mouth, and they strike me reproachfully on the cheek, and they gather against me. So he's saying, God's brought me to this place, and all this stuff is going on, and then here come my friends to beat me while I'm down. Stomping on my neck, kicking and scratching. Look at verse 11. God has delivered me to the ungodly. And turn me over to the hands of the wicked. You get what he just said? He didn't say, Man, the devil's doing all this stuff to me, which is true. The devil is behind the act, but God is holding the leash. He says, God's the one who's letting this happen. God's letting this stuff happen, and and I don't know why. I don't know why he's turned me over to the wicked. He's not the only guy who ever struggled with that question. Read the Old Testament prophets. Those guys struggled with that question all the time. Lord, how is it that you use the wicked to judge your people? Job says, you've turned me over to ungodly hands. I was at ease. Life was good. But he has shattered me. Speaking of God. He has shattered me. He has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. Gall was what you would give someone who you were torturing or beating to ease their pain. But he's saying, no, the Lord doesn't ease my pain. He dumped the gall out on the ground. I don't have anything to ease my pain. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. He's saying, this thing... That I'm going through. I just wish you guys understood it. And would give me a little sympathy. That's the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life. So he's crying out for understanding and sympathy from friends who are judging and condemning. He says, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin And laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping. And my eyelids is the shadow of death. He's saying, look, just look at me. My agony is visible. You can see how much I'm suffering. Just look. Although no violence is in my hands. And my prayer is pure. Verse 17, he says, I am innocent. I haven't done anything. And he's not lying. That's what God said in chapter 1 and 2. And what he'll say in 42. Job didn't sin. He's fighting a battle against Satan. And Satan currently is using his friends as a battering ram against him. He's God's champion. He's going to win the battle. But it don't feel like it right now to Job. Job. In 18, he says, Oh earth, do not cover my blood. He's saying, look, I don't want the the, the earth to cover over what's happening. I I don't want to cover over me. Let my cry have no resting place. What's his cry? I'm going to cry from now until I have an answer. Why is this happening to me? That's his cry. And then he says, Job has all these insights like this. Surely, even now, my witness is in heaven. Is that true? He's going to say in a little while, for I know my Redeemer lives. Who's his witness in heaven? It's Jesus Christ. He hasn't come, but he will. And what does he do now? The Bible says, He is seated by the Father. The Bible tells He ever lives to do what? Make intercession for us. To be our witness. To be our advocate. To be able to put His hand on us and on God and restore the relationship between one and the other, right? So this is what Job's saying. Look, I even now my witness is in heaven. He goes, even now I know God has a plan. What's going on? And somewhere in heaven, the mediator, there's someone who can put his hand on me and his hand on God. He just doesn't know his name yet. His name's Jesus. Because he's fully man and fully God. He put his hand on man and his hand on God. He bridges the gap, the separation between sinful man and a holy God. And that's what Job's calling out for. He says, My evidence is on high. Heaven knows what's going on. Is he telling the truth? Sure he is. Does heaven know he's innocent? Heaven does. What heaven knows is he's engaged in a battle against Satan, and he's winning. But sometimes when we're winning a battle against Satan here on earth, it don't feel like we're winning. It feels like we're losing. But he's not losing because he has not lost his faith in God. Satan said he would lose his faith in God and curse you to your face. But Job won't do it. Job's doing the battle. He's fighting the battle. He says in verse 20, my friends scorn me. All these guys around me. I wish they'd go home. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his friends. Job's saying, I depend on God, not my friends. I got to depend on God. I, I, I got to make my case with him, not with you guys. You guys don't believe me. You won't listen, but God knows. God knows the truth. If I can make my case with God, God would tell you. And that's true. God's going to tell him. For when a few years are finished, I will go the way of no return. Job right now, <clears throat> in, the, in the ash pile where he's sitting and crying out to God, he's dying. He's not just sick and has boils, he's dying. If God doesn't stop what's going on, Job will die. Die. And he knows it. That's why he just cries out to God, Just kill me. Just take me. But God won't take him. It's not time. So Job continues. He recognizes, I'm going to die. I I know I'm dying. So then, in, in verse 17, he makes his plea. The first plea was for understanding and sympathy in chapter 16. In chapter 17, he's pleading for relief and Compassion. His friends didn't have that. No relief, no compassion. In this next verse, in in verse 1 of chapter 17, each line is made up of only two Hebrew words. So I'll give you the two words, each one. Spirit broken, days extinguished, grave for me. That's what it says in the Hebrew My spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. Uh, I'm nearing the end. And are not mockers with me, and does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Why would someone be a comforter who wanted to mock? How is mocking help? You guys know hurt people say the craziest things, you know that? Do you know when somebody's weeping and crying and mourning and their child is dead or some horrific thing has happened in their life? You don't need to, to straighten out their theology. You don't need to fix what's wrong with their cries. All you need to do is what Jesus said to do mourn with him who mourns. You just weep with them. You just hold them and tell them somehow things are going to come together. And you hold them up. That's what you do. We don't straighten out theology on deathbeds. <laughs> we don't straighten out theology when people are mourning. When the mourning's over and they have questions, we can worry on worry about theology then. But otherwise, compassion, relief, if you mourn with somebody, you make their mourning less. If you rejoice with someone, you make their rejoicing greater that 's how it works that 's how it 's intended now put down a pledge for me with yourself who is he who will shake hands with me now that the idea of, or of, of this <coughs> verse in a Hebrew mindset is, look, we got a disagreement, so so let's finish the argument. Let's solve it. They don't want to solve the argument. They just want to keep arguing. Right? They don't want to put it to bed. They don't want to finish it. They don't want to bring it to a close. For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Now, he's talking to God. You have hidden their hearts from understanding. They don't understand You haven't opened their eyes, Lord. Therefore, you will not exalt them. God has hindered their understanding. And God will not exalt them. You'll see it when God starts talking. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. Look, he's saying, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you guys know that? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But an enemy's lies are deceitful. Flattery is deceitful. But a friend will wound you. will say the things that maybe are hard to say, but important that you understand. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's what Job is telling these guys. Faithful are the wounds. Man, I'm I'm trying to be faithful. I'm not trying to speak flattery. (coughs) Because if I do... The eyes of the children will even fail. But he who has made me a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit, my eye has grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadow. He, God, he made me a byword of all the people. The hand of God is in the midst of Job's trials. God is allowing these things to come to pass. Job never disputes the fact that God is in control. He just doesn't know why things are going on. He says, upright men are astonished at this. And the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. He's saying, look, you guys, my friends, you don't know what godly people know. Godly people would be astonished. They'd be saying, wow, what in the world's going on? Job, you're a good guy. Why is this stuff happening? But you guys who are supposed to be righteous and, and know these things, you're accusing me of being the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Because God makes us stronger and stronger. He gives us the strength for the journey that lies ahead. But please, come back. Come back again, all of you. I think he's saying, why don't you guys go away? Oh, we'll come back again later when this is over. They don't seek the, to be wise in the eyes of God. They seek to be wise in their own eyes. For I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into the day. The light is clear, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and sister. We say in the trials coming to an end, that phrase, if I say to corruption, you're my father, he's talking about the corruption of his body to accept the fact that he's dying. So, death, you are my father. Worm, you are my mother and sister. I'm dying, I'm accepting my death. But he says, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Who can see it? Who can see... My hope. This is what he is declaring. As we were <clears throat> working our way through uh, through Romans, in Romans chapter eight, this is what uh, Paul said: "For we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees?" But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Look, he's saying, he's saying, where's my hope? I I can't see my deliverance. I can't see, I can't see my deliverance, but I know my Redeemer lives. He's hoping in what he doesn't see. He's hoping in the deliverance of God. He's hoping that God is with him. And he's willing to face the truth. We'll see that as we continue on. So, will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? As he's looking at his friends, he's saying, I am ready to die. Are you? Because he says, that's one guarantee for everybody. Almost everybody, most people, a few people. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Job says, I'm ready to die. Uh, I'm ready to face the truth. I'm ready to stand before God. Are you guys ready? Once I, my mom had this really cool friend. Gosh, I can't remember her name. She was so happy. Every time you saw her, she had a smile on her face always 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 had a smile on her face. <coughs> she got stomach cancer, and uh, even while she was battling stomach cancer and going through all the treatments, never I went and seen her over and over and over, never not did i never did I see her without a smile on her face. She had surgery to try to remove the cancer, and they couldn 't get it all and The cancer was so throughout her whole body that the the incision that opened up her stomach would never close so her stomach's laid open it won't it won't heal because of the cancer and she's stuck in a bed in her home and my mom's taking care of her and they've got to you know change her dressing every few hours and and uh, they got a this suction machine to suck out the goop the uh, the infection that's you know oozing out of her wound pretty miserable last couple of days on earth she getting pretty close to dying so i went over there to pray with her you know and and so uh i come over to see her and man she had the biggest smile on her face she in misery she just grinning she said, "I'm going to see Jesus, Jackie. I'm not going to be here very long. So you better come over here so I can pray for you." I'll never forget it. Well, you're probably right. I probably need more prayer than you. I got a ways to go yet. You're, you're going, you're going home. She was so filled with hope. She couldn't see her hope yet. But she believed in him. Well, why would someone hope for what they can already see? You don't need to hope in that. You already got it. But if you hope for what you don't see, then you will have the endurance you need. Jesus is coming. He will come for us all. He may come for us one at a time. He may come for us all at once. I currently am voting for all at once. I grow weary of the one at a time. It's hard saying goodbye to people you love. But I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded he is able to keep me to that day. That's how we do it. That's how you have what James calls the patience of Job, who didn't ever give up, who suffered and squawked and made noise, but was smart enough when God showed up to say to God, I don't have nothing to say. That's why he was God's champion. He fought the devil and won. He never hit him with a fist or a sword or a shield. He fought the devil and won because he put his faith in God. And he overcame.